Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, I have my team on the line. Uh, Dr. Ray, good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to hear from you. Uh, I, I saw you a moment ago, but we've switched your video off just to keep things nice and clean and, and working yeah, well. Yes, so my, my, my dulcet American accent comes through more clearly over Zoom that way. <laughs> I think I've got a filter for that somewhere at my end. Um, <laughs> uh, we've also got Stacey on the line. Good morning, Stacey. Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. You're uh, still camped out in the wilderness somewhere, hiding away? Camped out in the wilderness, yep. Happy to have my uh, uh, week monthly connect with the Einstein and Gogo crew. Yep, you must be. You're looking very refreshed for someone who works for the Department of Health and Human Services. I think uh, I, I, I sort of had this yeah. image of you as this sort of golem-like creature that would sort of crawl out of the mud <laughs> from excess work and and sort of you know have a weird that's, voice. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, I think you might be lying, but <laughs> I am feeling a bit a bit exhausted and frazzled. But um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I can bet you would be. And Dr. Ailey, good morning. Oh, morning, Dr. Shane. How are we going? I'm going well and uh, very happy to be here at Triple R, actually. It's, uh, I, I always say it's the safest place in, uh, in the city where uh, the, the rules and regulations around cleanliness and that here are extraordinary. When I leave and go home, I have to take a shower because I smell like um, Glen 20, but uh, it, is, <laughs> it is definitely the safest place to be and uh, we're all very happy here at the moment. Now, we're going to jump into some news because we have some uh, really huge interviews today. In a little bit, we're going to be talking with Marge Danchen from University of Melbourne and the Children's Hospital. She's one of the best people on vaccines that I know and is exceptionally good at explaining the reasons why and and how to go about that. So we'll be talking to her in about 12, 13 minutes. But uh, Dr. Ailey, do you want to start us off with um, some news? Sure thing. Well, I've got some interesting news that's uh, out of the world of paleontology, actually. And this is this is interesting because it's one of those situations in science that uh, sometimes happens, but I don't think we talk about too much. And that's a retraction, mm. uh, um, a retraction of scientific information. You know, people got it wrong uh, and they've, they've said they've got it wrong. So this is about a study that was published back in March this year and uh, everyone was in a, pardon the pun, a bit of a flap about it because it was about a little bird-like dinosaur. Um, so this, uh, they called it at the time a hummingbird-like dinosaur. I'm going to attempt to say the name. Um, Oculudentavis congrae. Oh, that old right. one. Yes. Yeah, anyway, tongue twister for your Sunday morning. Everyone try and say that 10 times fast. But um, so this was a tiny little hummingbird-like dinosaur, they said. Um, it has like this beak kind of structure. It's got little tiny teeth. Um, it's got big eyes. Looks looks like a hummingbird. Um, they said it weighed about two grams, so you can imagine how tiny this thing is. And they found the skull in a piece of amber in a mine in Myanmar, and they dated it back uh, ninety nine million years. Mm-hmm. And so everyone was excited about this, but today it's been retracted because basically a whole bunch of other people have got their hands on information from the fossil. They gave it a CT scan, did all fun stuff like that, and they've basically found that there's a whole bunch of features 
that just don't fit the bird hypothesis. And in fact, it more likely fits the uh, lizard hypothesis rather than a, a bird hypothesis. So uh, it's to do with the tiny little teeth that it has. It's to do with some little things that are at the back of its skull behind the eye sockets. Um, and yeah, it just, it didn't fit with the bird hypothesis. So that original study from March was retracted and the scientists uh, who were in charge of that uh, study in March have said, yep, look, we, we admit that, you know, the other people that have looked at this have, have pointed out some things that we didn't quite see and we agree with their, um, their findings that it's probably not a bird. It's probably more like a lizard. Uh, now that new study uh, that says it's a lizard rather than a bird hasn't actually been through peer review yet. It's mm. it's um, it's appeared on one of these what they call exit archives, which is like a preprint kind of archive. So people are looking over that now, and it's going through peer review. So uh, yeah, time will tell whether we accept it as a little lizard animal rather than a bird animal. Anyway, even regardless of what it is, it's still a very weird-looking creature. It's still a very cute-looking creature and uh, provides some insight back to what life was like on Earth 99 million years ago. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's still being considered a dinosaur. I thought the, the sort of end of the story there was that it was going to be a mosquito or something because at two grams, no. <laughs> it's almost insect no. size. So it's, yeah. it's nice to hear that it's still a dinosaur. I mean, that that is, must have been an amazing find. Yeah, it must have been an amazing find. Like, oh, look, we've got a, another mosquito. No, it's not a mosquito. It looks like a baby velociraptor. What's going on here? Like these, yeah. these things are so small. Yeah. Like it's incredible that they existed. And, you know, maybe their version of the tardigrade 100 million years ago. It's kind of bizarre stuff. Thanks, Dr. Ailey. Really interesting. No worries. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Um, Dr. Shane, I've got some worker, some researchers from City University of Hong Kong that have come up with ways to make new alloys or metals that might be able to be used to make things like jet turbine blades and other high temperature materials. Hmm. So it's really expensive to make a jet turbine blade. And, and you may not know this, but it's an alloy, but it's made out of a single crystal. Normally metal is made up of a bunch of little crystals pressed together. And that's what basically steel is. And, and where these crystals join together is called a grain boundary, but high temperature materials can't deal with these grain boundaries because that's where cracks form. And we do not want turbines to form cracks. So it's pretty amazing they can make something as big as a couch that's one single crystal of metal, mm. but it's kind of expensive to do that. So it, what these uh, researchers found is by making alloys uh, that are they're, they're called super lattice structure alloys, they pack together very tightly, but they do have lots of grain boundaries. But they found by making an alloy out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different combining metals in a particular ratio, they were able to make the grain boundaries basically sticky. And so those grain boundaries will slide past each other and you've got all this high temperature strength, but you don't have to, it's much cheaper to make. It's not as brittle. And it looks like it might have the performance to replace these high temperature materials. And so it's amazing that they were able to find a material that could do that. But the thing I find amazing about this story is it is, is that when we make alloys, I mean, you might think of an alloy where we mix two metals. That was the Bronze Age. But there's so many different metals in the atomic table. And we're still discovering that as we add more and more of these metals together in different combinations, the potential to develop even more high-strength materials and different ways to make things. And it just goes to show that in an era where we think we've been using steel for a long time, we know everything about metals. 
that there's this unending potential to explore and discover new materials to tackle different types of engineering problems. And it's just, it gets more complicated. Seven, eight, nine different metals in an alloy. Mm. Um, and you might be able to make something interesting. And I just thought it was an interesting snapshot of where that type of material science is right now. Yeah, I think the, one of the fascinating parts for me about that is when these metals uh, cast in a way where they're really thin or when they're used at really high or low temperatures. And so you get these weird effects of conductivity and weird effects of light transmission or reflection, things that you otherwise wouldn't have expected or seen. And, you know, gold doesn't appear gold when it's really thin. It appears all different colors. Like just some amazing scenarios about metals that we just, we just really don't, don't have a full grasp on yet. And as you say, the more you change and mix different ones together, the more you get some really interesting effects, which, uh, yeah, single crystal the size of a couch. Good stuff. Anyway, I think it's the ability and the technology to characterize things that's allowed us to mm. to get the stage to look at these multi multi metal materials. Yeah, cool stuff. Anyway. Stacy, what's cooking? Is it? Well, uh, I, yeah, you're going to talk about COVID, <laughs> or you got something else on mind? I'm not talking about COVID today. I'm I'm pleased to have a a break from COVID. I I, I came across something about lung transplantation with a, with a twist in Nature Medicine a couple of weeks ago. So um, lung transplant is a cure for people with end-stage lung disease. Mm -hmm. So these are things, people with conditions like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic emphysema, Um, and these conditions really affect a person's quality of life and probability of survival and ability to breathe and things like that. So uh, it's a leading cause of death worldwide, we'll see see what it is. And the problem globally is that we've got low donor numbers for lung transplant and high rates of graft failure, and many people die while waiting for a, a lung transplant. Um, and then once you um, receive donor lungs, only a small proportion of them can actually be pla- um, transplanted into recipients. So it's as low as about 15 to 20% in the UK. In Australia, we've got a higher rate, about 40 or 50% that are explanted or, or harvested can be can be usefully used clinically. Um, but a lot of the, the remaining half are usually too damaged at a tissue or a cellular level to um, be a suitable candidate for transplantation. So normally what they do is they harvest these um, the lungs from the donor and they doctors keep them healthy for around six hours before they can be transplanted. And they do that by keeping um, human blood and therefore oxygen circulating through those harvested um, lungs from the body. And that's called um, clinical ex vivo lung perfusion or EVLP. But maintaining this viable sort of donor lungs beyond six hours has um, proved quite challenging using this method. So um, this experimental study that I came across um, by research is in the Department of Biomedical Engineering in Columbia University have explored a new mechanism for recovering donor lungs and making them more suitable for transplantation. And they did something a little radical. They took six harvested lungs that were deemed unsuitable for transplantation Um, because they were too damaged, and they tried to recover them essentially by connecting them to the circulatory system of live pigs. Outrageous. (laughs) Outrageous. (laughs) What? I had visions of like a a lung being attached to the back of a pig and the pig running around. But um, no, so they do this. It's called xenogenic cross-circulation between the human lung and the pig. Um, And uh, there's actually a a video that the researchers posted of this um, a pretty amazing experiment of, of, of the function of the lung being restored by the, by the blood of the pigs. So amazingly, this cross-circulation of the whole blood between the donor lungs and the pigs um, actually restored the lung functionality and they were able to maintain that for up to 24 hours, mm. which is markedly wow. more than what we could do clinically. Um, so what they found is that it maintained that um, or restored the tissue structure 
um, at, at, yeah, at the tissue level and at the cellular level. It didn't damage any of the lining to those very delicate um, pulmonary blood vessels, which they were concerned about. And then there was like no evidence of um, immunological rejection, um, although they did need to use those immunosuppressive drugs on the pigs themselves for that 24-hour period to reduce that risk. But it was pretty cool, very experimental, but um, they essentially demonstrated that this cross-circulation could potentially complement that clinical EBLP process um, to recover damaged donor lungs that would otherwise not have been able to be used. So, yeah, uh, pigs pigs must hate that they they must hate that they're so close to us in that regard. I mean, they you know we, we're grabbing their we're grabbing their valves, we're grabbing all sorts of stuff. They must you know. I know. Yeah, Good they're amazing. It. Pigs are amazing creatures. I think you know, and and a shout out too to the perfusionists because they don't get talked about very often. But the people who manage to do this sort of vascular work and so forth are incredibly skilled. And most of our listeners may not have yeah. even heard of perfusionists. And the skill level involved in that that work is incredibly high. I've only met a few of them, but they're they're incredibly skilled. It's yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was sort of also looking at, well, that that research platform, how they can use it for exploring other, um, you know, other um, harvesting and organs and, and, yeah, perfusionary sort of needs, mm. that like that as a new sort of novel way of utilising um, whole blood xenophytic, you know, the cross, xenogenic cross-circulation uh, for other clinical applications uh, they're looking to explore. So, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, very, very cool stuff. Well, I think... Uh... You know, any there's so many things going on there. It's it'd be really interesting to see where we where we sit in 20 years because we have you know we talked to a few people recently about the idea of growing, you know, growing some of these organs from scratch from people's cells. You know, these mini kidney pieces of work that have been done down at you know the children's hospital and so forth here in Melbourne. There's there's all sorts of cool stuff at that end. Then there's the other end of actually you know repairing you know some of these these um, harvested. Uh, harvested organs and you know then the idea of you know stem cell therapies to you know repair the damage within your own organs and there's there's so many paths at the moment that that are really interesting and we're not there yet but um you know you can imagine for something where the the numbers that are available are so appallingly low um you know you don't want to be on that waiting list i think it's really quite shocking so yeah absolutely yep yeah well guys uh we're gonna have to Go because I've got to go to a music track, and then we have a um, we have uh, Margie Danson hopefully waiting on the line in just a few minutes. But good to chat to all three of you. Stay safe, stay isolated. Yeah, nice to see you again, Doctor. Nice to see you. All right, take care, guys. We'll chat soon, folks. I'm going to take uh, a break for some music, and we'll be back uh, talking about vaccines in just a few minutes. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. We have our first guest for today on the line. Now she's been on the show before, and she's one of my favourites. Um, Associate Professor Margie Danchen is from the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. Margie, it's great to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shane. It's great to be back. It's been a while. It's been quite a few years. And the last time you were on, of course, we talked about vaccines, which is um, very topical at the moment. We were talking about it before anyone cared, um, which is, I don't know, probably five years ago now. But, I mean, a lot of your work, I think, will just give people a flavour of what you do. But a lot of what you do down there at the the Children's Hospital involves parents and, and convincing parents to vaccinate their children. Yeah. 
That's right. I work in the specialist immunisation clinic, which uh, runs sort of once a week at the hospital. And that uh, clinic is really set up to discuss um, vaccine concerns, also vaccine adverse events, reactions kids might have had or special vaccine schedules. But one important function of the clinic is to talk with parents who do have vaccine concerns right the way from mild concerns or moderate concerns to sort of refusing parents. And, of course, with the no jab, no pay and play policies, we've had a lot of parents coming in and talking to us uh, about getting exemptions, which is a very interesting thing we could maybe talk about a bit later. Mm. But, yeah, so I I do spend a lot of time as a general and immunisation paediatrician talking with parents about their vaccine concerns. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've said many times on air here and, in, in you know the Twitterverse and, and and other places is that this sort of judgmental approach to people who don't vaccinate is a, a sort of self defeating um, proposition and and it just will not work. I mean, what's your view on that? Because you must you must have parents who come in there quite adamantly against this. How do you approach that? Well, that really is the focus, a big focus of my research program, and also a very important part of of what we do in the clinic. And absolutely, a judgmental approach really doesn't work, because what we know about vaccine communication is it it's as important how you say something as what you say. So, of course, the information that you're imparting, the actual factual knowledge, if you like, is really important. But in fact, it's much more about rapport and trust and whether the person you're speaking to actually identifies with you. And I think, you know, really, especially with um, people who hold very strong views or even who have very um, entrenched uh, views around government or religious beliefs and so on, they have to really, to get a foot in the door, you have to have that degree of trust and rapport. Uh, And and that's, you know, something that we work very hard to develop with families. Mm. I mean, one of the things I find interesting here is I suspect a lot of our listeners have had scenarios where their interactions with clinicians have been ones where they're not overly heard. You know, the the, the patients aren't always overly heard. And this seems to be a a real flaw across the medical sector that, that, you know, if you look at some of those average times that a clinician listens to a patient before they interrupt, you know, it's in in many cases, it's sub 10 seconds. I mean, what you're you're talking about is the absolute opposite of that. It is it is really, you know, hearing that story and listening to their perspective. I mean, this how do you you find that flies in um, in the cl- clinical environments where this is, I guess it's, it's, things are better at the children's, I know that, but, you know, in, in many clinical environments, this is a very unusual approach. Well, it's important to acknowledge up front that, you know, the front line are really the GPs mm. and the nurses, particularly immunisation nurses that speak with families, and they have a lot less time than we do. So in the specialist immunisation clinic, we can have up to 45 minutes or an hour with a family if the GP has referred them into us. So we do have more time to build rapport and to address questions and find resources and, and give, you know, references that parents are looking for. So I want to acknowledge that because I think I think GPs are often really under the pump with time, you know, 15 minutes or so. Um, but I think uh, it's sort of both sides. I think very often if um, a healthcare provider is overwhelmed by a parent, the kind of reaction is to sort of shut the conversation down and be quite overbearing and judgmental. And, and often that sort of perhaps a lack of um, knowledge and trust on both sides of the fence. Um, so I think it is understandable, you know, why that happens. But I think we know 
Well, first of all, the most important sort of predictor of a parent changing their mind or accepting a vaccine is a, a positive interaction with a healthcare provider. So the healthcare provider is absolutely key. Um, and I think, you know, taking the time uh, to, to listen, as you say, very, very important to listen to parents' concerns and really acknowledge um, what they are saying. So we have a particular approach where we uh, or we sort of um, allow the parent to express exactly what they're concerned about and really identify those top sort of two or three concerns and then kind of ask their permission to share information and then try and address them one by one. It kind of also draws on the principles of motivational interviewing mm, and, and yeah. I, we find that very successful. Yeah. Now, I mean, just, just for those listening who aren't completely across exactly how vaccines work. I mean, give us a bit of a rundown on that process. I mean, when you when you get, say, for example, you get the flu vaccine, I mean, what, what happens yeah. in the body? What's in the vaccine? You know, what, what, what's going on there that makes us then resilient um, to, to the infection later? Well, vaccines can either be um, intramuscular uh, or injectable vaccines, if you like, or oral vaccines. That's the first thing to notice, to, to note that, um, for example, the oral rotavirus vaccine is, is taken in the mouth. But for those ones that are injected into the muscle or a little bit um, shallower than that, um, that's an important point to note because people are often concerned that a, a vaccine is injected straight into the bloodstream, which it is not. Um, but in terms of the vaccine ingredients, the most important part is the antigen which is the part of the virus or the bacteria that um, is inactivated um, or, or killed. I mean, uh, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, for example, is a live vaccine, but it's attenuated so that it doesn't cause disease. So the most important part of the, the vaccine is the antigen, and that antigen stimulates the immune system to create antibodies um, and that is that first line of defence that they are circulating uh, in the bloodstream should the person meet the, the virus or the bacteria and that's sort of ready to go. But the other important thing to note is very often there's a second part of the immune response, which is the cellular immune response. And those are the other types of the immune cells that come into action, they're part of the immune memory, and they also help to boost that antibody response. So the antigen is the most important thing. Um, and then there are other parts of the, of the vaccine, such as an adjuvant, which is um, something that helps the immune system see the antigen better and create a better immune response. And then there are salts and, and some sugars and stabilizers and other things. And, and often, mm. you know, parents really want to go down in great detail to understand exactly what is in the vaccine, which is one thing that we do in our clinic. Mm. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to me when, when you when you put it that way. How you, the, the reality is here is, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the the immune system's response to the vaccine is all but identical to the immune system's response to the actual virus. If you if you were to get it, so. That, That's right. So the the difference, of course, is that I don't get the disease. So if I'm, you know, the the, the scary part is sort of taken away, um, and there's no yeah. scary part left with regards to the vaccines. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, 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 well, vaccines are not 100% safe and that's the other thing that we do need to be very transparent about as scientists and, and you know, healthcare providers is a vaccine is like any other medicine. It mm. has side effects 
and it's balancing that risk of the disease versus the risk of the side effects. And most of the side effects from vaccines are mild and easily treated. There are very rare adverse events which we share, you know, the risks with families. So I think it's important, again, when you're talking about rapport and trust, that we don't oversell vaccine safety, that that we're honest. But what I wanted to say before is it's important for for people to realise that Um, Some uh, diseases, for example, like meningococcal disease, which most people are familiar with, a really nasty bacterial infection that can cause overwhelming what we call sepsis or when when the bug is in the bloodstream or meningitis, that can be very rapid in terms of how quickly that disease develops. And so the body, when it meets the natural disease, doesn't always have time to make those antibodies uh, and so the person can get overwhelming infection and die, for example, in as short as 12 hours. So Mm. some diseases like that, those are the ones that are particularly important that we have the vaccine um, so that there is that, um, uh, you know, those antibodies in the bloodstream and the immune memory ready to kick in very quickly when you have such devastating, overwhelming disease. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about around this is you mentioned that idea of, you know, the, the vaccines are not zero risk, but you weigh that up against the risk of the actual diseases we're talking disease, about. And there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a big difference there. I mean, we do accept that comparator a lot when we do things like CT scans, you know, which is just many, many x-rays. And people are quite aware of that. And that, that argument seems to have worked right, you know, very well, that it's better to have these, you know, hundred or hundreds of x-rays in one one go, which we know is a radiation dose that's concerning yes. to some degree, but it's better to do that and work out that you you need a significant surgery or you have a cancer or you have some other significant problem that is a much greater risk to your health than than the scan itself. And so right. people accept that very, very well, it seems. I mean, why do you think it is, and maybe it's just this sort of anti-vax movement, but why do you think it is we're struggling so much with um, vaccines in that regard, making that same argument? Well, I think it's often hard, you know, you're taking a well person and you're asking them to have a, a, a preventative medicine, if you like, and giving it to a perfectly well child. So people often lose sight of what these diseases are. And to Mm. be honest, as we know, vaccines are almost a victim of their own success because we don't see a lot of these diseases. But we as paediatricians working in the hospital system do. You know, we see these vaccine-preventable diseases and so we're able to sort of share that risk in a more real way, I think, with families without scaring them. The intent is not to scare but to, as I said, really come back to, well, what are we trying to do with vaccines and and pivot back onto the disease and the severity of the disease so that it's sort of a bit more of a realistic weighing up of risks for for people. Mm. Um, And I think that can sometimes help. But, you know, I think it's also important that people realise that the vaccine schedule, particularly for children, well, any age, is designed to be given at the time of greatest risk. So, for example, when infants are most vulnerable to certain diseases is when those vaccines are given at those specific time points. Mm. And I think having the time to sort of um, understand that and talk through that often helps people appreciate what what vaccines are trying to achieve and what the risks really are. Yeah. Now, I mean, you're doing amazing work there with the children's and I can, I can just imagine how many parents you've sort of moved the needle on in terms of vaccine concerns over the years. We are in a situation at the moment, of course, with COVID-19, where hopefully, you know, in, in maybe maybe as many as a few months, we, we could be looking at a vaccine being available. What, what are your thoughts on that, given we have a vaccine for the seasonal flu, 
but the uptake is not perfect on that, and we're certainly going to need a very, very significant uptake on any COVID-19 vaccine. Well, that's right. As we know, everyone is pinning uh, our hopes on returning to our previous way of life on a vaccine because globally and certainly within Australia, less than 1% of the population has had COVID. And to get herd immunity or to stop the virus spreading freely in the community, we're going to need protection around 60% of the Mm. population. So we've got a long way to go. And we can't really achieve that uh, easily with letting the infection spread through the community. So we need this these vaccines. So I think, as you say very um, clearly, with flu vaccine, the acceptance and the uptake year to year is not great amongst the public, Some, you know, somewhere around 30 40%. So there's going to be a lot of work that needs to go into preparing the public for these COVID vaccines. Everybody knows that the um, vaccine development timeline for these vaccines is going to be accelerated. It takes about 10 to 15 years normally to develop a vaccine. And now we're talking about 9, 12, 18 months. So obviously some of the phases of vaccine development are overlapping. But I think what our role is going to be is to clearly, to be able to clearly communicate to people um, that, you know, when we have the data about vaccine safety, vaccine effectiveness, so that people can really, you know, appreciate and interpret the data themselves. Hmm. And do you think, um, I mean, one of the things that's obviously happened with the the flu season this year is we've all but knocked it out, I think. I mean, I I saw some of the the numbers of deaths and they sort of seem to be down by about a factor of six from, you know, in the hundreds to in the tens. Um, obviously, we can't we can't keep living. Well, maybe we may have to, but you know, it's very difficult for us to keep living with the current scenario. Is is COVID substantially more? Um, you know, is, is it being spread more easily than the the traditional flu? Is that part of the problem here? I think it is. Uh, it is a little bit more infective and spread more easily than flu. Um, you know, certainly we are seeing now uh, community spread in certain scenarios. Um, and as you say, this year, uh, flu disease has been incredibly low. Uh, so I think COVID is very different to the seasonal flu. Um, and, you know, I, I, we are going to be relying very heavily on a vaccine uh, mm-hmm. to, to come out of this. Yeah. Now, can we talk just a little bit about uh, the sorts of people, I suppose, who depend us Depend, depend on us the most for this because you and I will get this vaccine, no doubt, at some stage, and that's great, but you and I would probably survive COVID unless we're fairly unlucky because we're relatively healthy. We're in the sort of middle of our lives. But there are a whole range of people, and I know you see a lot of them at the children's, who are unable to actually have vaccines. Is that right? Yeah, so the vaccine prioritisation process for COVID is really interesting. Unlike most new vaccine introductions, this vaccine, these vaccines are not going to be targeted at kids in the first instance. Um, you know, WHO and the, the US, um, uh, it's called ACIP or, or the committee that decides on, on vaccine prioritisation, has already identified healthcare workers and, um, you know, at-risk individuals. So that's particularly people over the age of 65 and people over the age of 50 with, with medically at-risk conditions. So if you like, healthcare workers and at-risk people have already been 
identified as the first two groups that are going to be prioritised for vaccine. And then after that, it'll come down to other risk factors around environmental risk or cultural risk, you know, people living in very crowded conditions, prisoners, you know, people are incarcerated, you know, there's all sorts mm. of other groups that might be identified. Um, and as you say, you know, general uh, parents, pe- you know, people in the population, kids are not going to be first um, targets for these vaccines uh, and we're going to be waiting, I think, um, mm. which is going to be really interesting, I think, to communicate you know, who these vaccines are going to be given to first and why. Yeah, and presumably there, there are people who have um, either autoimmune diseases or primary immune deficiencies or they're undergoing cancer treatments and things uh, of that type that just will rely on the rest of us to be vaccinated, yeah? Absolutely. And that's, you know, what we face already with vaccination and why it is so important that we all play our role and, and you know, follow the National Immunisation Program schedule is to protect the most vulnerable in the community. And as you say, those are people too young to be vaccinated. So infants under six months, for example, with flu or um, the, the elderly who don't respond as well sometimes to vaccines and need special sort of adjuvanted or stronger vaccines, or as you say, people who just can't receive them because they're immunocompromised. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that messaging is going to be the same about if, if and, and it might even be that mandatory vaccination is considered for some of these groups if uptake is not high enough. Yeah. Um, what do we know at this point about the way in which the body uh, develops its antibodies to COVID and how long that lasts? Do we have any clue as to, you know, if I've had COVID, can I get it again in a year? Is it, you know, I know with the flu, it's, it's a different strain, but do we, do we have a, any sort of ideas yet with regards to COVID as to what that looks like? There's a huge amount of research going into that at the moment. So sort of the rate of antibody decay, if you like, if you've got antibodies, how long do they last? There have been some publications that have come out and maybe suggested that those antibodies are not lasting as long and that it's been suggested that potentially a vaccine could create um, better immunity, for example. Mm. I don't have the answers to those questions yet. I'm not sure anybody really does, but there's certainly a huge amount of research going into looking at the immune response, zero surveys, tracking, you know, how long the antibodies are persisting for. I think it's going to be a very difficult situation if they don't last very long um, and then we're looking at sort of a, you know, a yearly COVID vaccine, for example, is going to put a lot of pressure on the system, but that may well be the case. Yeah. I mean, just on that, I'm just thinking, what what vaccines do we have? We're getting COVID for a second, um, which is hard to do, I realise, for most people, but um, what vaccines do we have that are kind of lifelong where we, where we, once we get them, our body learns what to do and it just hangs on to that for the next 70 years? Which ones do that? Oh, well, for example, hepatitis B vaccine. Um, once you've had two doses of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, there's a number of vaccines actually that once you've had um, the recommended doses that, you know, that immunity persists for life. Flu is particularly challenging as we know. That's a seasonal every year vaccine and mm. those antibodies are only thought to sort of last um, at a protective level for maybe sort of six months or so. Uh, but most vaccines actually have pretty long-lasting immunity. Yeah, and is that uh, how does that immunity compare to if I actually had had those diseases? Would my immunity be equally as long or is that one of these things that aug- it's, is augmented in the vaccine? itself? No, I think it is true to say that um, actually having had the disease does create stronger immunity uh, Mm. most of the time. But of course, then to have had the disease, you're at risk of the complications of the disease, you know, and potentially dying from the disease. Um, Very often people who are 
um, concerned or against vaccines quote that point and say they'd prefer to have the disease. I, I think that's a very high-risk strategy depending on the yeah, disease. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, now, Maggie, I've got some people in a, in a far-flung secret laboratory working on cloning you because I, I realise that one is not going to be enough to deal with this whole problem. But, it, I mean, what, what sort of things do you think we, we need to be doing at the moment more broadly across our society to deal with this? Because I think for a while, with the exception of some some you know, great people like yourself who have really been battling this, you know, head on, on the front lines, we, we've kind of been a little bit asleep at the wheel with regards to promoting the value of vaccines. And as you say, yeah. a, it's been, a, the success of vaccines means no one sees polio on the street. Um, That's right. And, and the, the marketing campaign of those against this has been, frankly, pretty damn effective. You know, they've been good yeah. at that. And we're not – our side of the argument hasn't been as good at communicating that, with some exceptions, as, as you, you are one. But what do we need to do now to really get in front of this? Because with something like COVID, all of a sudden it's very serious and we're looking at a lot of deaths if we don't sort this out. And it seems as though the communication element here is key. Absolutely critical. Well, look, the battle is being fought on social media pretty much and online and that's where the pro-vaccine advocates and that's where we need to be. There's been a fantastic paper that came out recently in Nature that showed that, in fact, the anti-vaccination clusters and the undecided clusters on social media interacting very strongly in kind of a central network, if you like, and the pro-vaccine clusters are on the periphery merrily kind of not engaged and so, in fact, it is our role now to get in there and have very strong pro-vaccine messaging. I think often the pro-vax messages are seen as very vanilla or, or boring um, and that we're saying the same thing over and over again and that's because, you know, the science is pretty clear and vaccines are safe. But I think we need to be clever and we need to be able to communicate um, effectively and transparently and clearly and get amongst um, the, the anti-vax and particularly the undecided clusters on social media. I mean, you'd be aware through COVID the massive uptick in anti-vaccination activity and misinformation online. There's demonstrations that have been occurring, anything from COVID restrictions and lockdown to 5G networks. You know, mm. this is a real issue. This is a big problem that we need to tackle head on. We can't pretend it's not happening. So I think, um, you know, when we think about these COVID vaccines, it's, it comes back to the principles of clear uh, risk communication and particularly community engagement. We need to be engaging clearly and transparently and frequently with communities and really listening. Um, and, and that is, as I say, predominantly on social media, but also on the ground in communities with community leaders themselves. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you, you mentioned earlier was very much around the importance of, of listening to the perspectives of those who you're, you're interacting with. And I know this morning I interacted with, you know, I went to the supermarket, I interacted with the, the lady serving me who asked me questions about why, why we're now wearing masks. And, you know, I had to give a little science lesson yeah. while I was being served, which happens to me more often than I'd like to admit. But it was one of those scenarios where the, the very simple question from her was, but we were told months ago that this wasn't necessary and now we're being told it is. That's right. And I think whenever you, you breach the trust barrier there, 
um, and you don't give an explanation for it or you don't provide correct education to allow that yeah. person to transit from one view to another, you, you get yourself into that mindset, you know, of, of a, almost like a child not being able to hold two realities at the same yeah. time and then bang, you've, you've lost and before you start. And then like, well, you were lying to me before and it's exactly. not true. I mean, we all know that this pandemic is changing all the time depending on the phases that we're mm. in, what's happening with community transmission, the messaging. I think the government has done a, an incredible job and all the advisors that have been working so hard. And that's what I mean about effective risk communication. We have to be communicating so regularly and clearly and transparently and to be able to say at times what we don't know but mm. we're trying to work it out or we're looking for a solution. And that's how you build trust. Yeah. And that's how you can go back and say, well, actually, we were wrong before, but this is what we know now and this is what we're advising now. Yeah. One of the things I've found interesting over the last couple of decades is as the transition, especially around climate change, has moved from it's not true to eroding the trust because we use the the falsification technique in science of adjusting where we are depending on the information we have. And yeah. so if I change my mind and say, you know, last week sea level rise was going to be a meter, now it's 0.8, but I'm more more sure of the 0.8 than I was of the one, then all of a sudden I'm less trustworthy. And this is something that's crept into the narrative with the media and others. And I think around issues of COVID, it's particularly potent and problematic. So, we're, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe cloning you is the best way to go forward in terms of solving this problem, getting more better communicators out there. Is that, is that something we can do? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I sort of am constantly learning and looking for people who I think communicate really well. And I must um, say, for me, the Prime Minister of Singapore, uh, Lee Hsing Long, I'd advise people to Google him. And I think he's an exemplar in risk communication of someone mm. who just communicates so clearly, so beautifully, and has the trust, I think, of his people. Um, and I think we've seen fantastic examples. I mean, Brett Sutton has done a remarkable job in Victoria and he, he also really exemplifies clear communication. So I think, you know, when these vaccines arrive, this is what we're going to be looking at, us being on the front foot, communicating what we know, what we don't know, um, and really trying to bring people along with us. Yeah. Well, look, Margie, it's been absolutely fa fantastic talking to you again. Let's try not to make it five years before the next time we do it. But, uh, I'd love to um, chat to you again soon. I think... Um, Oh, just playing my Zoom there. Uh, certainly, as as the vaccines around COVID and so forth come out, we should should have another talk and yeah. just and just go through some of the details of the safety and the like in in real simple ways, in consistent ways too, and and make sure everyone is on the same message so that people aren't hearing five different versions of things because there's plenty of ways that anti-vaxxers can attack the way in which we communicate this stuff. We've got a lot of weak points and we need to fill That's those right. in. So look, And look, we could have a vaccine as early as the end of the year or, or, mm. or early next year if that Oxford vaccine yep. um, actually uh, does come through the phase three trials. So yep. well, I read, a, I, read a, I read a quote actually, I thought I'd read out to you just so you, you'll love this just before we go, but one of the, one of the people working at um, that Sinajan uh, company over there, um, their, their shares are going through the roof at the moment. And his comment was, everyone uses the word unprecedented. We need a more powerful word than that. <laughs> I thought, 
I'm not sure you do, actually. <laughs> I think that's probably good enough. But That uh, pretty much sums it up. Pretty much sums it up, the problem we're having. Um, Margie, great chatting to you. Take care of yourself and keep doing the great work you're doing there at the Children's. I know it must be a difficult situation at the moment with so many people coming in for different reasons, but um, it's important work and I'm sure there are a lot of families out there who've benefited from your great advice. So thanks so much for chatting well, again today. Thanks very much for having me, Shane. It's my pleasure. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our final guest for today. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go Go on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In our virtual studio now is our second guest for today, Dr. Anne Allsbrook. She's from La Trobe University and the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Anne. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. I'm going well. Now, I'm losing your audio just a little bit. We'll see how that goes. We might have to switch your video off. Um, I okay. S- yeah, that's better. Uh, I saw your um, some of the work that's come out in the press release earlier this week that you're doing. is really interesting on how our light pollution is affecting some of our birds and so forth. And I think I think we've talked about this a bit before on the show, but you've got, got some actual solid data on this now. So talk us through what you've been looking at, which birds and so forth, and, and what we're seeing. Yeah, so what we've been looking at is how different types of streetlights affect birds. And so the two species we were looking at were Australian magpies Mm -hmm. and pigeons. And that might sound like a bit of a weird combination, but um, we looked at pigeons because their sleep has been more studied than any other bird, so we know quite a lot about them. Okay. And then we wanted to kind of compare those results to an Australian native bird. Um, So that's how that came about. And so what we were doing was we had these birds, we brought them into aviaries at La Trobe University and we tried recording their sleep and seeing how white and amber lights affected that sleep. Mm. And we were interested in that particular comparison because we know that, so in humans, when people we have um, filters on our phones that shift the light to be more amber in the evening and we do that because that can help us to sleep better so we wondered whether that kind of solution might also help yeah our bird so so tell, tell me a little bit about the bird eye this is something i have i, I would say next to zero knowledge about i mean i know we see various colors because we have um three different color receptors in the eye or the ability to receive these colors what what happens in a bird's eye how much can of the visual spectrum that we see can they see they can see most of what we can see, and a lot of birds can also see UV. Okay. So they have very good color vision. Yeah. Hmm. So, so in in that sense, like the when you talk about the the white light, we're we're hitting them with pretty much everything in one go. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly it. And we're particularly interested in the blue part of that white light. So blue wavelengths of light we know have a particularly strong effect on the hormone melatonin, which hmm. is really important for regulating sleep. And so. Um, part of the idea of shifting the color of light is if you remove those blue wavelengths and you shift to a more orange light, then that could be better for sleep and better um, for those daily rhythms. Yeah. I mean, they must they must long for the days when we used, you know, gas lighting and things of that type, right, where there was less of that really harsh white light, yeah? Yeah, that's really interesting too. And we've also seen a shift recently where – we're shifting to more energy efficient lights, LED lights, um, which in some ways is a great environmental solution, but they tend to be much more white. Um, they tend to emit more blue light. And because they're more energy efficient, sometimes what people are doing is like, oh, they're more efficient, let's put up more of them. 
So, which is obviously the opposite of, of what we might want for our wildlife and for yeah. people as well sometimes. So, so what do we see in terms of the sleep patterns between comparing like magpies and pigeons? Uh, you know, who's worse off there and, and how, how bad is the change? Yeah, that's really interesting. So what we found was that both species were affected by both types of light, mm-hmm. um, the white and the amber light, um, and affected quite a lot. The pigeons lost four hours of sleep at night out of their usual 10, so wow. that's a pretty, pretty big difference. Um, but what was maybe even more interesting was that pigeons were affected the same by both types of light. We saw no difference between white and amber light. And magpies were worse affected by the white light. Okay. So in that sense, maybe amber light could be better for some birds, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, one size fits all. Yeah. And, and I know there are sort of habitat restrictions, but why is it that the magpies and the pigeons don't just get the hell out of Dodge, so to speak, and just, you know, move, you know, move away from us? Like, over time why hasn't that happened when we've been doing we've been polluting this for a while yeah so i mean in our experiment we didn't we didn't give them a choice right mm. we we, yep. we made them sit under those lights to see what would happen in the wild they might be able to avoid some of that light um we don't think at least these two species do very much um the the levels of light that we used in our experiment were based on the levels of light we recorded near magpie roosts. So they're, they're exposed to those kinds of lights. And um, in urban parks, they probably can't mm. always avoid them at all. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got a patchy landscape, so they might be able to get slightly darker spots, but they are a bit limited there. And we might also be seeing too that the birds that are still in our cities are the ones that maybe either don't mind so much or they can handle it better or they don't know that they should avoid it maybe. Um mm. So, yeah, yeah it, it is interesting which mm. which birds choose to stay. Yeah, it's interesting. And is it possible for us to sort of mimic of our lighting more what they would get from, say, reflection of the sunlight off the moon at night and, and things like that? I mean, obviously, have evolved to sleep during those conditions. Uh, could could we could we more better mimic those conditions with our lighting? Yeah, perhaps we could. Um, probably the biggest thing, though that would need to happen is we need to have less light. We The, the environments we're creating are just so much brighter. There's so much more light than you mm. would naturally have. And so first I think we would need to be thinking about bringing down those levels to what would be more like moonlight. So moonlight is maybe um, 0.1 lux is how we usually often measure light and the lights, the street lights we put up are maybe at ground level underneath them 20 lux. Wow. So you're talking about a massive difference from what you would naturally experience yeah and is is there's the possibility that we could just you know aim all these things differently i know in, the, in a lot of astronomers over the years have talked about making sure all the street lights face downwards rather than just omnidirect you know rather than just in any direction and so forth um i mean is there any hope there i mean this seems like a real tough problem yeah absolutely i, th- I think that's a great solution too in terms of thinking about probably overall we need to be thinking about what we actually need to light up and then how we can light that up as efficiently as possible without lighting up everything around it. So mm. that involves maybe bringing those light levels down, bringing down those intensities, also directing the light where we actually want it to be, like you yep. said, shielding them, um, perhaps using sensors and timers so the lights are only turning on when we really need them to be on when people are actually around. 
and then maybe turning them off when we don't need them at all. Yeah. Well, look, it's uh, it's important work, Anne, and um, I'm glad you guys have, have got this paper out proving that this is a real thing and it's you know quantifiable and it's happening and it, it depends on the bird and depends on the on the colours that they're they're seeing and so forth. Because it's 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 heartbreaking to hear that a 10 hour sleep pattern has dropped down by four hours. I don't think many of us humans would handle that kind of 40 percent reduction for long before we start going a bit nuts. So, you know, if you get swooped by a magpie, you know, maybe it's not just them protecting your young. Maybe they're just pissed off about how lights or something like that great to chat to you um good luck with the ongoing work and thanks so much for being a guest today on on triple r thanks so much for having me thanks Anne. i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere thanks so much for tuning in we have some ridiculously amazing shows coming up over the next three or four weeks for you so be prepared for those we'll be announcing a whole lot of stuff next week which will be exciting until then have a great sunday and we'll chat to you soon Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.